0: Welcome to the NC4 Podcast. We exist to know Christ and make Him known. Discover the power of a connected life by listening to this message from God's Word.
1: Well, I'm going to start things off for us. So as Ian said, we were sent out 30 years ago, so this is a big anniversary for us. 30 years as missionaries, half my life now, which is amazing. And... Um, yeah, we work with the marginalized, mostly people with addictions, and we bring them into residence and see God restore their lives amazingly. So we've seen many, many amazing stories over 30 years, and God has given us strength, and like Ian said, God's given us courage to do this work for that long. Um, so I want to tell you a, a bit of an update, a bit of a story of what God's doing um, because honestly, it's been an amazing, actually, time. We've been here, I guess it was two years ago since we've been here. Um, and God has blessed us abundantly during this pandemic time, which is a bit crazy. But it's true. Um, so just I want to tell you the story as quickly as I can. About 20 years ago, God spoke to us and we, you know, really believe that as God speaks that we need to obey. And God spoke to us about building a, um, a building that would house not only some social enterprises, because that's part of what we do in Battelle is open social enterprises, and we try to sustain ourselves as much as we can ourselves, you know, through those. So s- social enterprises, but also church and, um, and also a training center for helping, you know, to train people to do what we do, but also to train people in the arts and to train people in, in other areas, you know, certainly businesses too. So, a big project. God said build a place that would house 1,000 people and also the, you know, the social enterprises. So that was 20 years ago. So since then, Kent and I have have well, been putting meat on the bones of that of that dream that God gave us. And we persisted uh, to pursue that. So the exciting thing is <laughs> that God has blessed us with a building. So about um, four years ago now, we purchased a building that was just an empty warehouse. And it was took us about two and a half years to get zoning permission to do the plans that we had to do, you know, in God. So it took us that long. So right before the pandemic, so it was about, it was Christmas of 2019, as I was reading through the Gospel of Luke, I just stopped at the, at the Lord's Prayer and God's, or, you know, Jesus's instructions to us about how to pray. And I stopped and, you know, read the Lord's Prayer. And then just following that is that story of the friend who knocks on the door of the other friend at midnight. Remember that story? But this is how Jesus is explaining how we should pray, what kind of prayer warriors we need to be. And so, we, like I said, we had this building, and we needed 7 million pounds to renovate this building. We're, we're, you know, we're a group of, mar- you know, people who can't tithe, <laughs> who have no money. You know, we bring people in off the streets. We're like, Lord, how in the world are we going to get 7 million pounds to renovate a building? So here we are. We're at that place. And so God's speaking to me about prayer. And so in that story, if you read it, it says, because the friend who was knocking at the door had shameless audacity as he knocked on that door, I'll get up and I'll answer him, right? And I thought, wow. I mean, it hit me like, we. and then, it, then it's the portion of, you know, ask and you will receive, seek and you, you know, and knock, you know, that knocking at the door. And I thought, Wow. God is teaching us. God's going to be bringing us into a whole new level of prayer, a whole new level of faith to see this whole thing realized. And so we began, you know, to ask, to seek, to knock, and just say, Lord, (laughs) you know, open the heavens to us to fulfill what you asked us to do, to fulfill your promises in our lives and, and I can tell you it's been, it is still, we're at, in the middle of this. It's a journey, a major journey of faith and how to begin to pray and learn how to pray with shameless audacity. And God does that in us, not because God's reluctant to answer our prayers or he's reluctant to fill his word, you know, in our lives, the promises that he gives us. We go through this process and we learn how to pray like that because obviously it does something in us. God wants to do something in our hearts as we begin to just go after him with that kind of boldness, with that that kind of relentlessness, like I'm not going to let you go, Lord, until you fulfill your promises in my life. You know, when we were heading to the mission field, it was that same sort of, you know, absolute um, tenacity of faith that sent us to the mission field. Kent was like, we'd been waiting. He felt all his life to get, you know, this promise fulfilled. And we went to a missions conference and it was that same sort of thing. God, we're not going to let you go until you release us to the mission field. And we didn't even know where and what that meant. (laughs) It was just, release us, Lord. And so here we've been for 30 years, and we thank you for your support for 30 years. We couldn't do as a family what we're doing if you weren't supporting us. So thank you for getting behind us in faith in all that we do. So very quickly, I will just show you some slides. So... This actually was a bonus. <laughs> this isn't the building I'm talking about. This was a bonus. We, uh, we have a property, because we have residences throughout the UK, and this is one in Nottingham, and we own a, uh, we're, we're buying a men's house in Nottingham with a, a property that also has couples on it. And, but we needed a, more. We needed more room for men. And so during this time, too, individuals... One couple has given us over a million pounds to build that property that will house more men and more couples on our property. So that is amazing. That was a bonus. <laughs> Thank you, Lord. So that's in Nottingham. That's the inside of that. Now, this is the building I'm talking about. This is the one we bought. This is what it looked like when we bought it. It's, it was a, a, just a warehouse Massive, you know, uh, area with no pillars, which is amazing. And this is the, you know, the, what, it will, what it will look like, more or less. And it's almost looking like that now. Night view. So this is the entire building. This portion's done, which has a whole uh, series of classrooms. And we're already going to be renting it out to a Bible school. And some of our men are going to be going to the Bible school, which is amazing. Um, And we have already opened on April 14th the performance uh, area, the arts performance suite. So we have a a black box theater and dance studios and and a foyer for that. And we we just did, I'll show you. Well, this is also, we opened a cafe on, on August 14th also, the same day. This will, will be, this hasn't been done yet, is a child soft play area and a beauty salon. I already have two of the women who had been hairdressers in our center. And that's the conference area, um, which when we open it up into the dance studio will house a, a thousand people. That, that's the opening up. So that's a before picture. So this is the Infinite Arts, that's our Art Center, that's the entrance there. That's what it looked like before, and that's what it looks like now. Bit of an Art Deco style. And that's the, this is the, um, the dance studio and um, theater section beforehand. That's beforehand, and that's what it looks like now. And that's set up for the first performance uh, that we had on August 14th, which this is the cast. So they did it in original production with original music, original um, um, script. uh, And it was a a sequel to um, Alice in Wonderland. It was called Wonder. And they did an amazing, amazing job. That's the cast. So these are our people from Battelle, learning. Most of the people had never done any acting, especially no dancing. And here they were doing a, a very professional performance by the time they were done. So God's blessed us with a few people who have some experience, who have some education, who are training them. And it's, it's amazing to see the gifting that comes out of people. Just amazing. Now, this is the Rising Cafe. This is our fourth cafe that we've opened, which is very exciting. That was a before. That's what it looks like now. So we've opened this, and it's you know already making some good money. Praise God. That's before, and that's what it looks like now. That's our kitchen staff. Again, these are people being trained up in Battelle to be Uh, part of the kitchen staff. I have a manager there who's had some education and experience, and he's teaching them all to be a great kitchen staff. (laughs) So that's Phil, who's managing it, and Becky, who's come up through our, you know, program, and she's the head chef in there. That's front of of house here. Make some good, beautiful coffees and cakes. That's, we had a wedding in there already, and that's some of the women in the front of house. So that's our story. That's all the before. There we go. So we have that. (laughs) So pray for us. We have, so we're, we're halfway done. So all, I kind of skipped over the fact that Half the money has been donated to us. We have already been given, how much, Kent? Three and a half million? F- five and a half million dollars. Okay. Well, we've raised five and a half million dollars. Part of that was through selling some of properties that we had. But in a year and a half, that has happened. Wow. Isn't that a Wow. I mean, literally this, I mean, we, we're not like big, you know, great fundraisers or anything. <laughs> it's just God dropping money just out of nowhere, seriously. So, so we're still halfway through and we're still like in the middle of this faith project that this will get done because we're done right now with the money. It's, it's done. So we, you know, need to see more miracles for the second half. So pray with us for more miracles we don't want it to sit half done. You know, we don't believe that'll be God's will. So pray with us that, 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 that this will get finished, hopefully by next May, so we can have a big celebration in there by next May. So thank you very much. I'll let Kent finish off.
0: Hi, everybody. Good morning, good morning, good morning. I can't tell you, in words, how exciting it is to be home, to be with you all after two years. Don't need that, thank you. Um, yeah, hey, we're not great fundraisers at all, but the fact is, when God says it, you don't need to fundraise. Um, as Tony Miller once put it, you can have anything you can get the revelation for. So we got the revelation, and God's doing it, and uh, yeah, there has amazing things to tell. Look, as I start, <clears throat> Quick uh, commercial as you go downstairs. There's, these books are almost 50 testimonies with beautiful black and white photographs of peoples whose lives have been transformed in Battelle and their stories. Those are down there if you're interested. And there's also brochures about our internship program. So we have interns, we've had oh, 100, 150 interns in different nations in Battelle around the world uh, from lots of different churches. So we'd love to have you come join us If you're interested, take one of those downstairs and look it up. Uh, Let's get right into the word this morning. Um, I want to thank the NC4 leadership for just entrusting us with this privilege to share our hearts and ministry. As Mary Alice said, 30 years we've been overseas now. It's just so amazing, and we're so grateful. We've also been 40 years married this year, and... Thank you, thank you. Really need to applaud her. Uh, And 25 years, uh, we're celebrating a Battelle in the UK. So 25, 30, and 40 all converging into one year. So it's a pretty special year for us. Uh, And yes, she has said, one of the great blessings in disguise through the whole pandemic is that by contrast, the amount God has provided for us and blessed us with has been absolutely astonishing. So uh, we wanna share our hearts, or I wanna share our hearts on how our church community has really fought, especially in this last few years, leading up to this building, getting this building through the pandemic. We have fought tenaciously to wage the good warfare in divisive times, okay? That's my title this morning. So let's read our text from 1 Timothy 1. Paul writes to Timothy, when I left Mass for Macedonia, I urged you to stay there in Ephesus and stop those whose teaching is contrary to the truth. Don't let them waste their time in endless discussions of myths, spiritual pedigrees. These things only lead to meaningless speculations which don't help people live a faith, a life of faith in God. The purpose of my instruction is that all believers would be filled with love it comes from a pure heart, a good or clear conscience, and genuine faith. But some people have missed this whole point. They've turned away from these things and spend their whole time in meaningless discussions. This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare. Holding faith and a good conscience by rejecting these, some have made shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hermenius and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. Holy Spirit, we just pause for a moment, dependent on you this morning to give us insight, so that the words of our mouths and the meditations of our heart, especially towards one another, would be pleasing and acceptable to you. Today... As we leave this place in difficult times. Thank you, Lord. Amen. You know, being grounded across the Atlantic these last two years, Mary Alice and I have had a very unusual vantage point from which to observe all that's been going on in our beloved home country. And I don't imagine, I have to convince you, has there ever been such a convergence of vitriolic Volatile politics, along with a a national outcry against racial injustice, and hundreds of thousands of Americans Americans dying all all around us, not in a foreign battlefield somewhere, but right here in our own hospitals and homes, amidst a world-halting pandemic that's brought the world to its knees. You know, without a shot fired, this invisible enemy is cutting short the lives of hundreds of thousands as we war with ourselves. That's how it looks and sounds from afar anyway. Arguably, not since World War II, maybe before that the Civil War, has our nation lived through so perfect a storm of social upheaval across all ethnic groups, all communities, towns, cities. But closest to our heart this morning, my heart, I'm sure, is what this upheaval has sown in our churches. What has it sown in the church? And maybe between some of our families, family members. Now, what makes this passage we read in 1 Timothy 1 relevant today is that in its broader context, Paul writes this entire chapter to address a problem that threatens to divide the church in Ephesus. And while there's certainly a greater difference in scale and degree facing all of us today, the nature of the issue is virtually identical 2000 years ago. Because to summarize in one concise phrase, even in the first century church, syncretism, was creeping into the church, into the practice of the early church. It was threatening to pervert the gospel. For 2,000 years, where as far and wide as the church has spread, it's faced syncretism. Now, what does that word mean? That means every, every civilization has attempted to merge or syncretize the gospel with opposing principles, ideologies, religious beliefs, cultural practices that were popular in that society. In Ephesus, syncretism was beginning to take a form that essentially taught this. Paul's gospel of salvation needs help. It needs a little boost. So that our faith in Christ, for it to really save us, you have to merge it with obeying the Old Testament law. Everybody familiar with that? Big problem in the early church. Now, that lie of syncretism in Ephesus introduced a very subtle but toxic doctrinal error into the church. But alongside the root error, what I really want us to consider this morning is the fruit of that error, the fruit of the perversion. You know, because at a glance, lots of trees look virtually indistinguishable, don't they, from one another on the outside. But Jesus himself said, it's by the fruit of a teaching or teacher we most easily recognize their true nature. Isn't that right? In other words, we should always, brothers and sisters, hold our strongest convictions and beliefs up to close examination and put them to two tests. The first one is, do they stand up to the standards of Scripture? And second, the second test is, the first test will be further verified. Why? and how by the fruit those convictions and beliefs bear in our lives, what they bear in our church, what they bear in our witness and testimony before the world. Because you know what, just like uh, in Ephesus, syncretism doesn't storm its way into the church normally, it slips through, it slips in through very spiritual sounding, well-meaning convictions. So imagine, in the first century church, to any culturally Jewish convert. This new thinking sounded really rational, didn't it? Appealing, Christ and the law save us. Well, of course, that makes sense, doesn't it? Very slippery. But the early fruits of that syncretism, what were they? The error was there, but they soon began to expose the true nature of the tree. There was anything but peace, love, and joy in the Holy Spirit, but instead what Paul's addressing through Timothy is the church is being splintered by division, disputes, quarreling, controversy. We just read it, right? That's what's happening. You know, oddly, if you will forgive the analogy for a second, syncretism is a lot like having bad breath, meaning it's easy to smell it on others You can sniff it out in other cultures and time periods, but it's really hard to smell your own, isn't it? You know, from my ministry post in Europe, our ministry post in Europe, it's quite obvious there's a powerful syncretism invading the American church that I know is decidedly cultural. Why? Because if you lived somewhere else, as we have for 30 years, you'd know it doesn't even exist in the same form in England or Spain. Those are the two contexts that we know best outside of America. In fact, Patel is in 22 nations, so that's a fair sampling, and each one experiences its own syncretism. Pressures of secularism, Buddhism, uh, Hinduism. You know what, if I can be blunt for a moment, I hope you find it helpful to know that the divisive impact of things like party politics or people criticizing leaders, leaving churches over wearing masks or not wearing masks as a matter of faith, or whether the church should denounce and even own up to and repent for historic racism. You know what, that bitter cocktail of issues isn't dividing believers and churches to any discernible degree, to any discernible degree, anywhere else that I know of, not in the 22 nations where Batel is, where our ministry works. You know, there's some whispers of it in the press here and there, mainly because all American cultural trends tend to ripple across the world. But by contrast, the societal upheaval over here, these past 18 months, rocking the church with it, has almost uniquely American characteristics. You may know that, you may not know that. Now, hear me, I'm not suggesting anyone just abandon their convictions. These things should really be considered seriously, examined seriously before the Lord. I'd suggest in discussion with trusted leaders as well. But here's what I'm suggesting, brothers and sisters to all of us today, that we all examine our strongly held convictions by putting them to the two tests. And the foremost principle to consider is this, to weigh their scriptural purism in contrast to their cultural Americanism. Can I say that again? The principle is to weigh their scriptural purism in contrast to their cultural Americanism. You know, being immersed in your own culture, Mary Alice and I have this advantage of now having lived in America for 30 plus years, and now we lived overseas for 30 years. When you're immersed in your own culture, it's kind of difficult to discern the difference, isn't it? It's kind of hard to see. But that's where the second test becomes all the more helpful. In my, and I mean this sincerely, my humble opinion, if I were still worshiping in an American church, I would appeal to all of us to examine the fruit of our convictions that we're voicing, both verbally on the social media. A popular children's version of Proverbs 4:23, I used to read when my kids says, above all else, guard your heart because what you put into your heart will show up in your life. What's showing up in your life? It's a good honest question. What fruit over time do we see, we, do we see growing from our strongly held views? Where do we see it growing in our family's lives, in our church life, in our collective witness? To society. here's my, you know, if anything I'm saying has pricked your own heart or conscience, my encouragement is go, humble yourself, ask some trusted people around you, hey, how's my spiritual breath? What does it really smell like? Because I can't smell it. The aim of this charge, Paul tells the disputing, quarreling Ephesians, is, what did he say? It's love. You know, I read a few years ago, we're part of WEC International, a mission that now has 2,500 missionaries in like 80 countries around the world. And a couple, few decades ago, Norman Grubb, the architect of the mission, wrote this. He said, you know, here in WEC, with our missionaries spread around the world, at that time they probably had about 1,500 missionaries. He said, you know, I can get them to sacrifice. We can get them to evangelize. We can get them to learn a language, live in a different culture, in hostile areas all over the world. But the biggest problem we have is getting them to love one another. Love is patient. It's kind. It's not proud. It doesn't boast. It doesn't dishonor others. It's not self-seeking. It's not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. You know, by that definition, I mean, we can romanticize Christian love all we want. The fact is, love is very costly to me personally. It's very costly to think of others more highly than myself or my viewpoints or my rights. Who's really willing to be honest with themselves this morning? Could it be that in your zeal to make your point point, in your passion to be right, your cultural Americanism is showing? Because you know what, among believers, love means this, to reconcile is always more important than being right. To reconcile is always more important than being right. And that, brothers and sisters, is our highest manifesto. Among all the other manifestos that surround us, that must be our highest manifesto. And I want to say, there's no condemnation this morning. You know, if you're convicted at all here online, that you've contributed to any division between you and others, if you've caused any heartache for your leaders, you know what? Exercise love. I mean, go. Make it right. Reconcile in a spirit of humility and repentance. That's scriptural purism. So in the same spirit in which Paul guided Timothy, I've got one final question to unpack this morning. How can we ourselves leave here today strengthening our grip on sincere faith and a good conscience, as he told Timothy? In the weeks, the months ahead. You see, in, in young Timothy's case, he found himself in a pretty serious predicament. Think of it, Paul is hundreds of miles away Comforting letters from him arrive how often? Every two, three, six months. Face-to-face visits with Paul are years apart. The Ephesian church is unsettled. Contentious ideologies, beliefs, practices spreading among the sheep everywhere. Fake news is rife. Quarrels are erupting. Sound at all familiar? But in response, Paul gives Timothy two simple charges in this chapter, he advises him how to address the mess in two ways. The first charge is aimed at the church as a whole. It's what you might expect. He says, Timothy, command the believers, stop entertaining falsehoods. Stop analyzing pedigrees, making spiritual comparisons with others. Stop entertaining myths. Dare I say, maybe the the word conspiracies fits a little better in our context today. However, It's the second charge we need to really grasp as well, and I find it unexpected. Paul closes the chapter with a really dramatic metaphor. He says, by casting off faith and casting off a good conscience, some, including two known by name, Hymenius and Alexander, known to Timothy, he says they have shipwrecked their faith. What's he saying? Multiple multiple believers known to both of them hadn't just lost their way in a divisive season. They were on the rocks. It was serious. He even handed them over to Satan for a period to say, learn not to blaspheme. Whoa. Does it get any more serious (laughs) sounding than that? But then the tone changes. In verse 18, with a father's heart, Paul turns from instructing the church to express his concern for Timothy and his personal hold on faith and good conscience. What is your personal hold on faith and good conscience this morning? In the second charge it's interesting. Paul makes no appeal to Timothy's intervention at all. He doesn't tell him, look, restore the peace Timothy. I want you to sort out all the disputes. He doesn't give him intellectual bullet points. So Timothy can kind of post and blog his way out of the problems, silencing the controversies with very finely tuned arguments. He doesn't appeal to the Old Testament prophets. He doesn't appeal to Proverbs for wisdom, even to the written word of God as he does elsewhere. Instead, you know what, brothers and sisters? There are times so humanly unsolvable that our only appeal is to the supernatural appealing from the heart to the supernatural. Not by might, not by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. This charge I entrust you, he told Timothy in verse 18. My child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding on to faith and a good conscience. In other words, look, Timothy is charged to fight, but in a completely different, defenseless way. The way to sustain your passion, if you're passionate in this present turn of culture and pandemic and everything. The way to return to true north if the storms have blown you off course, or if somehow in these divisive 18 months you're stagnant, the wind is gone from your sails, how do you steer clear of the rocks? You wage the good warfare, is what he tells them. How? Now here's the unexpected bit. By returning to the most intimate prophetic guidance God has spoken into your life. That's what he tells them just you and God. Timothy, by the prophecies spoken over your life, personally, God's directive guidance in your life, by them, wage the good warfare and hold on to faith and a good conscience. You know, when it seems the cultural currents and all the controversies are pulling us apart in all directions, maybe some of us are really left confused and angry. The way you get a fresh grip on faith and a good conscience is not by warring with one another. It's by warring with God's personal, intimate words to you. Faith, after all, comes by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. So, sticking to Paul's analogy, I'm going to close with an example or two from our own family's lives. That Mary Alice touched on. I hope will encourage us. You know, until nations, until the nations launched global positioning satellites last century, for all of history, the only reliable means of navigating the open seas, the only sure way to keep from shipwreck, was by looking up. Wasn't. It? With only the stars to chart their courses, course, uh, chart their courses by. I think ancient sailors lived by pure faith most of all, uh, all professions. Because on the open seas, there's absolutely nothing to guide a ship, is there? Absolutely nothing. The seas are the most unpredictable, unstable, life-threatening surface in the planet. So no matter which way you turn in your own strength or wisdom, you're lost, right? Doesn't matter which way you look. Every option, good or bad, looks the same. The point is, ancient mariners couldn't trust their natural surroundings at all. The only thing they could trust was the silent guidance of the stars. That was it. You know, to underscore the point very quickly from the Old Testament, switch scenes in your mind to the desert. Forty years, God led Israel through sands of sea, or seas of sand, didn't he? But that landscape also looked exactly the same all around, but there was a purpose. Deuteronomy tells us why. Deuteronomy 8 tells us he humbled you to teach you that people don't live by bread alone, rather by what? We all know it. By every word that proceeds from the mouth of the Lord. Do you know nothing has changed, brothers and sisters? Paul's challenge, his charge to Timothy, is the same uh, charge to us. Why? Why? we wage war with the prophecy spoken over us, is to teach us, no matter how reliable or unreliable the landscape, and let's face it, modern society is full of quicksand. We hold on to faith by trusting God's voice alone. You hear me? That We, we proceed holding on to faith and a good conscience by trusting God's voice alone. That's the lesson. You know, if you let a mixture of voices guide your spiritual convictions, what is to prevent them from misleading you? What is to prevent them from misleading you? You know, from Timothy's time until today, there's lots of rocks lurking out there in the open waters, aren't there? Lots of them. But the unique value of specific prophetic words I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand, but how many here have had a prophetic word from the Lord? Maybe God really enlightened and highlighted Scripture to you. Perhaps it was through a a prophetic figure, a person. How many have had, no matter how simple or how complex, a prophetic word from the Lord? The unique value of specific prophetic words, and I'm talking about from sources we and our leaders trust. Sources that we and our leaders trust, you know what? They act like stars. They act like fixed points of life that help us chart, chart the course ahead. In my honest experience, you know, those prophetic points of light for Mary Alice and I have helped chart the strategic direction of our entire missionary lives and our ministry, Battelle. We've now helped about 14,000 men and women recovering from drug and alcoholism, homelessness, criminal offending, helping to restore many of their families. At any given time, we have close to 400 of them living with us in different residences. You know what, by God's grace, and you guys, a lot of you guys do know this, by God's grace, we have persevered through really deep waters. Doubts, setbacks, false accusations, death threats, tons of mistakes along the way, One of our men suffered a fatal accident in one of Battelle's jobs. We have so many vehicle accidents that our collective car insurance now costs $280,000. There have been personal betrayals, court cases, fires and floods that have destroyed our businesses. I can't even count the number of vehicle thefts. And an armed robbery. So did we ever want to give up over the years? Eh, every once in a while. But our true prophetic words made all the difference to steady our course. You see, it doesn't matter how small the word, it doesn't matter how long ago it happened in your life, if you let disappointment set in, you begin to let doubt really blind your vision. It doesn't matter how small, it doesn't matter how long ago, it doesn't matter how it hasn't reached the horizon of fulfillment yet, you know what really matters? is the accuracy of the source. That's what matters. And if you know that that source is accurate, you can go anywhere and you can do, do anything. As said millions have been given to us for a project that God gave us the revelation for. And the truth of the matter is, we are just still kids from New Jersey and Pennsylvania who grew up right around here, just like all of you. In other words, if we can do it, you can do it. You can have anything you can get the revelation for. But what are you believing for? See, it's not just a matter of remembering my prophetic words. Nostalgia won't cut it. Paul says you have to know what it means to war with them. You have to war with them by faith. Not only remember them. It's vital that whatever you're believing God for today Do not let present circumstances, don't let doubts, don't let disappointments that you've let accumulate dictate where you're headed. I'm not gonna go into the whole story again. I could tell you, we really could, and if you want to know, we could tell you other stories, how God's direct prophetic word has accurately, just measuring star to star with nothing else around us, moved us in the right direction. The truth is, We've just followed the stars. That is really the truth. We followed the stars. So, be careful where you download your guidance from. Because human sources and arguments just can't be trusted for precise spiritual accuracy. Do You know, you start a journey with a compass that's just one degree off true north. Ah, not a big deal. Unperceivable. Go a thousand miles and you're way off course. It only takes a little bit. So this is my closing. Let's stand together. I don't know if the musicians are planning to come up, but I, I just want to leave you with a challenge and a prayer. With all my heart, brothers and sisters, here, my brothers and sisters watching online, by the way, I'm one of your biggest online fans. As many Sundays as I can, I'm here in New Covenant. Uh, so I, I love hearing and being with you all when we do that. With all my heart, I want to encourage you to leave here today determined, not just to remember something that God's spoken to me, but determined, no, to take hold of faith and a good conscience, the command is to wage warfare with it in your circumstances against the lies. No matter what you're facing purpose, uh, uh, personally in your family and health issues and job and work, war with them. Fight a holy violence, is how Tim Keller puts it. With a spiritual aggressiveness, ask sincerely to discern scriptural purism. In our attitudes and our ways. With a vehement, sweet, humble ferocity. You getting these contrasts in, in, in word uses? We can war. We can fight with a holy violence. We can be spiritually aggressive. We can be vehemently sweet, humble, and ferocious. And I pray, Father, help us sift out cultural Americanisms in our midst and really cling to your scriptural purism. Wage the good warfare, New Covenant. I'm going to suggest this morning that after a long season of social upheaval, lots of divisive competing voices, many of us would greatly benefit from a season of Shutting out all the cultural distractions, turning a deaf ear to controversies. If you become critical of others or your spiritual leaders or governments, past or present, just quiet yourself like a sailor at sea. Let's get our eyes off the tossing of the cultural waves shifting all around us. And I encourage you look up to the stars, to the Lord's guiding promises your life. And if you say, wow, I'm not sure I've had that yet. I, I need one. Ask him for it. The Lord really does answer the sincere prayer of the heart. Stop doubting. Start rebuking the disappointment of the past. Father, we fix our hope again in what you promised will be. Not what we presently see. As we sing, Even though we don't see it, you're working. Even though we don't feel it, you're working. You never stop working. And so we take a fresh hold on faith and a good conscience for your promises today, Lord. I want to go forward from this place, passionate to wage the good warfare. Thank you in Jesus' name.